This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to The Real Reel, where I take you behind the Instagram reel and into the real lives of entrepreneurs, content creators, and anyone who inspires me and may inspire you too. I'm your host, Natalie Barbu, and let's get into it. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Real Real Podcast with me, Natalie Barbu. Today's episode is a very exciting one because I selfishly got to ask a lot of questions. Today, we have on Kieran, and Kieran O'Brien is the founder or co-founder of uh, Media Kits, which if you're a creator, you've probably seen them before. They were the first media kit, like automatic media kit online, and they started about a year and a half ago or two years ago, pretty much almost two years ago that they started had the idea in 2017, launched two years ago because they had like come back to the idea and now they are getting acquired, which if you don't know what that means, it just means that another company has bought them. So Viral Nation has acquired them, which is really cool to see after such a short amount of time. I think it was after 11 months of launching, they were acquired already, which is insane and honestly just shows like how quickly the creator economy is moving and growing so this episode if you are interested in starting a business and how to set up for success then this episode is definitely for you if you're interested in startups in tech anything like that like I asked him all the questions that I wanted to know personally as the founder of Rella and also questions that I think that you guys would find really interesting and hopefully inspiring to really go after what you want to do Kieran is a serial entrepreneur he started five companies already he's young he's in his early 20s already gotten acquired has had companies that were making you know millions in revenue like he he is a true like young entrepreneur and it was just really really cool talking to him and this wasn't our first conversation I had actually congratulated him whenever I heard the news that they were acquired we talked for a few minutes and then I was like you need to come on the podcast because the story is so cool so we had him on the podcast and it is such a good episode but before we dive into the episode I kind of want to just give you guys like a little update you know last week you guys heard from Julie so I had my friend Julie on the podcast which is so funny because whenever I visit Dallas or whenever she comes here people are like so what it's the video or the podcast with Julie like you guys expected already so I think we need to make it a regular thing um so you guys can just see our friendship progress and like keep up with her because it's just like so much fun talking to her on here and I always think that she has such great insight and just her life experience is so unique so I love having her on my podcast but I want to know what your thoughts are on the new structure so if I do like one solo episode one friend episode two interviews if you guys like that because don't get me wrong the real real will always be an interview podcast I love bringing on inspiring people I love giving my platform to others but I also want to be a bit more open with you guys personally bring some friends on have just like fun episodes where we're just like talking about life I think those are always like some of my favorite to listen to so if you guys do like that, then please let me know and let me know what you guys like for like the title of that little series when I have it with my friend. But anyways, I'm back in Miami, not in Dallas anymore. And I'm headed to Charlotte this week. And you guys, every single week, 
except for a two-week gap. There's one two-week gap, but every single week besides that two-week gap, I will be on a plane. So, yeah. (laughs) Until, I, I didn't even tell you until when, until the new year, like until 2023. So, I'm sure that I will have plenty of intros in different cities, but I'm gonna be in Charlotte next weekend, or this weekend, and I'm so excited. I never buy basic economy tickets, guys. Like, I don't know why I don't like I don't know why I don't buy basic economy tickets ever I just main cabin is always available and I have status on American Airlines so it always automatically chooses main cabin for me which that's why I'm like why didn't it do it this time around like did I do something wrong like what happened but it was basic economy and I tried changing my flight because I actually booked my flight home for Thursday night And you guys, I'm feeling so homesick. I think it's because I'm really overwhelmed with work and I just need some like cuddles from Bambino, but I'm feeling really homesick and I never feel homesick. Like when I went to college, never once did I feel homesick. Moving to New York, no homesickness. Moving to Miami, no homesickness. Now for some reason I feel homesick and I'm like, this is odd. I don't know if it's because maybe before I had like a relationship to lean on when I got stressed and now I like have only myself. (laughs) Um, So maybe that's why, but I'm just like, I really want to go home. Like it brings me to tears. I'm like, oh my God, like I'm about to cry because I want to go home. And that's just like, usually doesn't happen. No offense to my family. Love you guys. But like, I just usually don't feel that way. I enjoy going home, but I don't feel like I'm going to cry if I don't go home. And I feel that way now, even though my flight is for tomorrow. So I'm like, what the heck? But yeah, I don't know why. I just feel that way. Moral of the story, I booked basic economy, so I cannot change my flight. I can do same day change like if within 24 hours. So later tonight, I'm going to see if it's available. But I, I'm just like really the one time I like desperately need to change or not desperately. I guess it's more of a it's a it's a want, not a need. But the one time I want to change my flight and it doesn't it doesn't happen. So, yeah, that's kind of my dilemma. And then also when I'm in Charlotte, I am doing a team thing. So Natasha is taking the train down from Raleigh. She's coming to Charlotte. Um, my co-founders will be in Charlotte. So we're all going to work together in person on Friday. And then Natasha is spending the night. So we'll probably do like a brunch on Saturday. And then I'm going to the Noah Cahan concert on Saturday with my co-founders and a bunch of their friends. And I'm so excited because I have been listening to Noah Cahan nonstop. If you guys don't know who he is, you definitely have heard the Stick Season song. It's like on TikTok. It goes, I'm not going to sing, but it's like, (laughs) I love Vermont, but it's the season of the sticks, you know, that lyric. Yeah, that's who he is. I've listened to him before that song. I only had like two songs from him before that. But when that song came out, it like reignited me to listen to him and like listen to more of his music. And I love him he's definitely gonna be my number two most listened person on spotify i'm so excited for spotify rap to come out except i know taylor swift is gonna be number one and i know i'm gonna be in like the top five percent of listeners because i listen to that woman every single day but noah Cahan will be a strong number two uh because i i either listen to like him or taylor swift in the car like that's been my go-to for the past like two months so well taylor swift for the past year for the past like 10 years but noah Cahan for the past two months Uh, So I'm going to that concert and then I come back to Miami Monday and then Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday, I leave for San Francisco and I'm so excited. So if any of you live in San Francisco, let me know because I would just love to know any recommendations. So DM me any recs and anything like that. Anyways, that's kind of my life update. Just wanted to share, but (laughs) I really love doing these intros and making these podcasts a bit more casual. So I'm being a little real with you, you know, and play on words, but 
Anyways, let's welcome Kieran to the show. Well, hi, Kieran. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we're going to get started with setting the record straight, which is just some stereotypes, assumptions. You're going to let me know if they're true or false, and then you can share kind of your thoughts on them. First one is that startups should have co-founders rather than solo founders. I think this is an interesting question. I think having a co-founder versus being a solo founder, uh, each of them obviously have their pros and cons. I personally prefer having a co-founder. I think having the right co-founder that complements your skills uh, is one of the biggest superpowers you can have as as a founder. But I also think that you shouldn't rush into it. And so if the if the barrier between you starting and bringing your startup to market uh, is the fact that you don't have a co-founder, that should absolutely not stand in your way and you should start anyway. Uh, and the right people will be attracted into your life and and to your business if you build things that uh, that people are interested in. And so I don't think that finding a finding a co-founder is a prerequisite to getting started, but it does help. Yeah, I agree. I think also if you start building and then you realize you need a co-founder, you can always, you know, find people later down the line. I don't think that you need to have one before you even begin the process, like you were saying. Right, exactly. And then the next one is that you have to have a long-term plan when starting a business. No, absolutely not. I actually think it's better not to. I think, you know, if you've ever heard of the book Zero to One, that's the most important thing in a startup. And most startups fail before they even reach zero to one. So going from nothing to having some sort of success, some some indication of product market fit, some indication of you know a revenue generating product, that's the hardest part. What happens after that is going to naturally come to you through customer feedback and other feedback loops that you have inside of your business. And so I think the zero to one and then one to 99 is kind of, you just kind of figure it out as you go. I think you have to, you have to have your total final end goal, right? Where do you want to be like in 10 years and where do you want to be tomorrow or maybe next week, but everything in the middle, that's going to come from your customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of people get stumped because if you like, if you're in school and you're in an entrepreneurship class, a lot of times they'll make you do like a five, 10 year business plan, this whole long report. And I feel like a lot of people think that you can't start something unless you have that or unless you, you know, know the the exit before or like the end of the road before you even begin. And I always thought that was so crazy because any business that does that, it's not going to look like that. Like it's going to change down the road. It prevents so many people from starting and it honestly just like stumps you if things like it, I, th- I think it prevents you from pivoting because you're like oh my god I didn't make a business plan for this I can't you know make this pivot even though you know it's the right business decision so I totally yeah. agree I think it's one of those things where of course you need to have some strategy and some vision and some long-term vision for what you want your company to look like but it's not going to be exact and I don't think it needs to be something that is like this every year projection of exactly what your product's going to look like and you know what it's going to be in five years so I totally agree what was media kits in the beginning versus your plan yeah I was gonna I was gonna touch on that so I've started like five companies now I've never made a business plan in my entire life and in fact at media kits we never had a longer roadmap than six months and during when we were fundraising during our fundraising process we actually had multiple investors and VCs that would ask us for a longer roadmap, like a 12 to 18 month roadmap. And I would literally just tell them, I say, sorry, I don't have it. And I'm not going to create it for you because we just, we're not thinking that far ahead yet. We have our, our end game. We know that we have our, our grand vision and we have our six month roadmap. Everything in the middle is, is a distraction. And so for the team, for the engineers, 
this is as far ahead as we're willing to think right now because we know what our customers need tomorrow and the next day. And that's what we're focused on. Did you get pushback from that? Like, did some investors say like, okay, no, you don't know what you're doing. I'm out because of that. Or like, what was the response? Yeah. I mean, I think probably most of the guys that asked me for that and that I, that I gave that answer to, they probably didn't invest, but at the end of the day, um, they, they just want a good fit in the first place. And, and I'm not going to compromise my belief systems or, or, you know, the processes that I, that I believe in and that I use to run my companies. I'm not going to compromise that because a VC differs in opinion. Right. Yeah, totally agree. And then the next one is that the creator economy is in its early days. Absolutely. I do believe that. I think that there's so much, uh, there's so much room left to build really cool things in the creator economy. Um, and for better or for worse, we're still really early in the attribution game. And I think that's the one thing that's most interesting to me. So prior to media kits, I come from a paid marketing uh, and, and uh, paid promotion background. So I was, you know, I was running large budgets on, on Facebook ads and Google ads. And so attribution uh, tracking and things of that nature was something that I obsessed over for the first three, four years of my career. And I think that the, one of the biggest opportunities in the creator economy that's still in its very early phases is proper attribution tracking, cross-platform, omni-channel for influencer activations and posts. And right now, I think that's the biggest, uh, while it is the biggest opportunity, it's also the biggest downfall of the creator economy right now, um, where the tracking just isn't quite there yet, which is causing brands to second guess uh, their deployment of capital. Do you see a lot more brands working with creators though right now and like trusting creators more than traditional advertising since you do come from that you know more the paid marketing background or how have you seen that shift with the with brands today you know i i don't know if there's a right answer i think it's kind of ebbing and flowing right now i think more brands are open-minded to it i think a lot more brands are, are testing and trying but also by the same token you know we're entering into a really interesting time in terms of like the markets and and the economy and i do think that influencer marketing is going to be one of the first things to get cut off of most balance sheets um with these big brands because like i said the attribution just isn't quite there yet and so while i do think that there's more people doing it i also think it's going to be one of the first things to go um on you know on the balance sheet on the pnl and so as technology continues to improve and as startups start you know building tools for uh, for brands to be able to track these things more efficiently and more effectively, um, then I think it's going to stick around a lot more and it's it's going to be in contention. It's going to be kind of seen on the same level as paid marketing and SEO and all these other things that are ingrained in the businesses that are paying for these things. Let's talk about styling hair because it is a whole production, especially when you are battling frizz. And take it from me, I live in Miami, Florida. It is about to be summer. I really know frizz, but honestly, I would rather be doing something else like booking a spontaneous vacation to St. Bart's or rewatching the Ares tour for like the third time. You know, the important stuff. But who actually has time for frizz? Introducing Way's new anti-frizz cream. It is like a superhero for your hair. It provides immediate frizz control that lasts up to 72 hours. I actually brought it on a trip with me and my friend borrowed it and she purchased it right then and there because it was that good. So how does this fit into my hair routine? It is the best thing I could have done for my hair. I am all about saving time and the anti-frizz cream does just that. Plus the Sydney inspired North Bondi scent is so amazing. You can thank bergamot, Italian lemon violet and more. And as someone who is always concerned about heat damage because I definitely use a lot of heat on my hair, this anti-frizz cream provides heat protection, which is such a big relief. And my hair feels so much lighter and looks smoother after using it. Get busy being frizz free with Way's new anti-frizz cream. It's not just about taming frizz. It also provides heat protection 
reduction up to 450 degrees, reduces inner pair split ends, quenches dry hair with intense hydration, and according to a consumer perception study, 90% of participants agreed that their hair looked less frizzy after using it. I can definitely contest that. And while you're at it, check out Way's other bestsellers like the leave-in conditioner, which I also use, detox shampoo, fragrances, hair oils, and hair gloss. They're all essential for achieving that salon-worthy look at home. So you can frizz free up your schedule with Way. Go to T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and enter promo code RealReal for 15% off any product. That's T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com, promo code RealReal. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today, as it should, with Earnin. Earnin is an app that is changing the game when it comes to getting paid. Imagine having access to the money you've earned as you work, not just waiting for payday. With Earnin, you can access up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So think about it. The next time you're planning a special night out, you need a last minute gift for a loved one, or you face an unexpected expense, like maybe a trip to the vet. Earnin has you covered. For me, it's about having the flexibility to handle those surprise expenses that life throws my way. So whether it's unexpected bills or needing to cover rent when things are tight, Earnin gives me peace of mind knowing that I have access to my hard-earned cash when I need it most. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability, security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type Real Real under podcast when you sign up. It really helps the show, so please don't forget that step. Real Real under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. There's so many more creators today, and I always look at it through the lens of, you know, how many creators are entering the market, how it's becoming so much more of a business, but for, for individual creators and for these micro creators as well. But I don't know how how are brands right now tracking these influencer marketing campaigns and actually making sure that they're successful that you've seen? Because I work a lot with yeah. smaller creators and they're, you know, everyone's always talking about how do I get brand deals? How do I get brand deals? How do I make more money? But I think as a creator, you need to understand like what are you providing to them? Like if a brand is not seeing ROI from you, you will not get paid. Like that's just this isn't just about, you know, you taking some photos and giving like putting in your work behind it. It's the ROI that the brand is getting. So how have you seen brands like track that and and which ones are successful when it comes to influencer marketing, if you've seen that? Because I know that that's not really what you were working on right yeah. now, but I know you've been speaking with like other brands. So I'm curious to know your thoughts on that. Yeah. The interesting thing is most of them don't. And it, honestly, the the ones that are most successful are the ones that don't need to track it, right? The brands that are going to see the biggest impact from these things are the ones that have really deep pockets. They can go out and just spend millions on influencer marketing and whether or not it makes it uh, makes an ROI for them, they're still getting that those eyeballs. They're still getting those impressions. And so those are the brands that are getting the most value because 
they have nothing to lose, right? Um, but then the smaller brands that are trying to track this effectively, they're using referral codes, uh, discount codes, UTM parameters, uh, links, et cetera, to try to track this. Um, but then, of course, the, the buying cycle for certain products is, is longer and is more dragged out. And there's, you know, a million different touch points on different platforms. And so it can just get diluted. And, and uh, there can be kind of a combination where sometimes the influencer is getting too much credit for a conversion. And sometimes the influencer is getting no credit for a conversion, depending on the life cycle of the buyer. And so that's really where, you know, this issue of attribution that I was talking about, that's really where it comes into play, where uh, whoever can solve that problem in the most accurate way is going to make a lot of money and is going to move the creator economy forward significantly. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I know, so now I want to shift gears back to you and like your, your story, but how, I know that you said that you had started five businesses before. When did you start these businesses? And do you always know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Was that always something that you thought that you would be from a young age? Or if you even knew that word from a young age, I feel like so many people that are entrepreneurs don't know that that's what they want to be until they kind of like fall into it. So curious to know your story with that. I definitely always knew that I wanted to do something like different and unique. Uh, I didn't know what the word entrepreneur was until much later when I was like, maybe 17, 18 years old. But as a kid, I mean, I would always, I would always be the one like I, I, I was terrible in school. Um, I never did my homework. I, I got like decent grades, I guess, but I never studied. I never really tried in school. The one thing that I was always really good at in school, though, was projects, like class projects, anything that involved like creative problem solving, I was really good at. And so that was kind of like an early indicator to me that I knew I kind of thought outside the box. And so that was kind of one thing. And then, you know, I was like flipping sneakers on eBay and doing like little things here and there. And then, you know, shoveling driveways, the whole thing. So kind of your typical um, entrepreneur come up story. And then I started my first real company uh, when I was 17. Before that, I had like the little production company, like I did uh, wedding photography, but you know, I was just kind of like a freelancer. Uh, but yeah, I started my, my first real company at 17. And that was the, uh, that was the performance marketing agency. So we were managing uh, marketing budgets for some of the largest e-commerce brands in uh, North America and uh, in the automotive industry specifically. And so that was kind of like my first at bat in in business. And then shortly thereafter, we discovered the the market opportunity for the second business that I started, which was automotive lead gen and appointment booking for uh, for auto shops. And so the interesting thing is like kind of between those two is when I started doing a little bit of influencer marketing for some of the e-commerce brands. And when I kind of stumbled across the opportunity for media kits, which is kind of like the fourth business that I started. So interesting. Yeah. I mean, marketing and influencer marketing obviously goes hand in hand, but the automotive stuff is definitely something that's a little different. And when did you have the idea for media kits? And when did you actually think of it as a legit business idea? Because I think a lot of times people have, I mean, I know myself included, I'm always like, oh my God, that's a great business idea. That's a great business idea, but I don't actually do it. So and why did this one stick and why did you run with it? Yeah, it almost didn't. That's the crazy part. So uh, yeah, like, like I said, when I was running that e-commerce marketing agency, so we were working exclusively with automotive brands. And so I started working with some of the biggest automotive influencers in the space. So all the big automotive YouTubers, automotive Instagram pages, we were like brokering deals for them with these companies that I was representing. And so I remember kind of the the light bulb moment for media kits was one of these big YouTubers that we were working with uh, reached out to me and said, hey, Pennzoil just contacted me and I need to send them a media kit. They're asking me for, for a media kit. And I literally didn't even know what a media kit was. So I Googled it. I'm like, oh, it's like a, it's like a one pager. It's like a PDF document with all your data on it. Cool. 
So I had the I had the YouTuber send me screenshots of all his analytics, and then I took that and put it into a Canva document and started building it out. And my very first thought process was like, why am I typing this data in manually? Like, I should just be able to authenticate with my Instagram and have this stuff automatically populate onto a screen like that. Why doesn't that product exist? So I researched, I was like, there's no way this doesn't exist. And I researched it. I'm like, well, sure enough, it doesn't. So um, that was in 2017, uh, when I kind of had that like light bulb moment. And I had just become friends with Casey at the time. And I called him and I was like, hey, I've got this business idea, like we're going to make digital media kits that update in real time. And I pitched him the whole thing. Like we literally had a whole, like a whole plan to, to start this business back in 2017. Um, but the timing just wasn't right. Like influencer marketing was still very much in its early phases. TikTok didn't even exist yet. And Casey and I were both in high school. So we didn't have any like resources to, to go and start a business. So um, we kind of just tabled it. Like I got the domain and everything, but we just tabled it and we we're like, all right, maybe we'll come back to it one day. And then three years later, we finally like officially started it. So that's kind of the, the origin story. That's funny that you bought the domain back then. Like you thought to actually purchase it because I'm sure that yeah. from 2017 to now that would have been taken like or 2017 right, right. when you started. Because I'm surprised that it even was around. Did you have to pay a lot of money for it? Or was it just like one of those? It was like, like a $12. It was like five like, grand. Oh, no, okay. It was five it was. grand. Yeah. Okay. Some, somebody owned it. Yeah, yeah. Do you, how many domains do you have? Like, do you have domains for any oh business idea? <laughs> you know, it's funny, right, right before this podcast, I literally just submitted a bid for another domain. I, I can't talk about what it is, but uh, I, I, I buy domains all the time. It's, it's a bad habit. I should probably stop. That's funny. Do you sell them also? Like if you end up not using them? Sometimes, but I'm a hoarder. I definitely have way more domains. I buy more than I sell for sure. That's so funny. Okay. I should start doing that. I do not, I buy the domains that I need, the ones that are like, like with Rella, like anything kind of similar to, to Rella right now. That's what we've been like doing, but yeah, yeah. that's a good idea. Yeah. And then, so you have a co-founder, Casey. How did you know that he was going to be the right co-founder for this or the right co-founder or business partner for any business that you do? Because that's, I mean, the number, I think the number one or number two reason why startups fail is because of co-founder issues. Like it's so common. Yeah. So how did you know that he was going to be that right person? Yeah, that's a great point. I had, I tweeted this the other day that most startups die by suicide, not homicide. And it's absolutely true. Co-founder conflicts is like one of the biggest reasons why startups fail. So I think like context is important. So Casey and I, we've been best friends for like six years. So we were friends before we were business partners and we actually never did business together until media kits. Like we were just friends, we were roommates. Um, and so we got to know each other on like a really deep level um, just as people. And I knew what his strengths were. He knew what my strengths were. And so in the beginning, I actually didn't bring him on as a co-founder in the very beginning. I was building media kits just by myself, just like with a couple contractors. And I gave Casey a little bit of equity because I knew that he might help like down the line, like with fundraising. And so then we started, like it's, it started to come to life where we actually had like mock-ups now and, and it was like turning into a real thing. And so that's when Casey and I went 50-50 because we started actually raising money and we both kind of came to the same conclusion. We're like, all right, we should just do this together. Like, just come on board full time. Let's just do this thing. And so that's that's ultimately how it happened. So there was kind of like a lead up to it where like we talked about the idea three, four years ago. And then, you know, he got involved in like a small capacity. And then eventually we we're like, all right, we need each other for this. We our skill sets complement each other. Let, let's just do it. Let's go 50-50 on this thing and and take it to market. So that was kind of the the lead up to our partnership. Yeah, I think that's smart because I mean, like you said, so many co-founder issues are one of the the biggest 
reasons why startups fail, but so many people jump into it without really knowing skill sets or the differences in roles or, you know, it's like they just want to kind of work with their friends and they're like, okay, we're friends. Like we'll, we'll work well together. And then they just start this business and then it ends up ruining the friendship, ruining the business. So I think that's lead up is, is actually really smart. And I know you said that you were working on it on your own at first, but when he came in, did you have a role for him already? Was it one of those things where it was like, I can't do this without you. Like we need someone that fits this exact position or how did you guys kind of discuss your separation and roles? Cause I think that's always, I always tell people like, if you're going to have a co-founder, make sure that your roles are so clearly defined and that it's different. It like, complements each other. It's not like you guys are working on top of each other because that's going to cause issues. Yeah, no, exactly. We knew exactly what it was from day one because he he kind of started to do these things before everything was official. Like we, we kind of just fell into it naturally. So I always lean towards product and operations and sales. And he always leaned towards like brand fundraising and marketing. And so that's kind of like, we knew that we, that we worked really well on that stuff. And so when we decided to fundraise, that's ultimately, that was kind of the catalyst for our partnership because I realized, okay, I can't bootstrap this thing forever. I'd already put a bunch of my own money into it. And so I realized I needed to fundraise. And then I realized I couldn't fundraise without Casey. So that's ultimately why we decided to partner up. And then he kind of just lived in that lane of like marketing, fundraising, and branding, like I said, and I, I did all the, like the backend operations sales and stuff like that. So. Mm-hmm. And none of you are technical. So how did you build this? Because so many people have ideas that they're like, okay, well, I just don't know how this would come to life because I'm not technical. So how did you actually bring it to life? I had no idea what I was doing, to be honest. Looking back, I definitely would have pursued a technical co-founder. Casey and I agree on this. We've talked about this many times. Uh, we would have pursued a technical co-founder earlier if we could do it over again. Uh, but we made it work. At the end of the day, a technical co-founder is great. It helps you fundraise easier. Um, I know you have one. Um, helps you fundraise easier, helps you focus less on, you know, like the tech problems uh, that startups, especially SaaS startups inevitably have. And so I definitely wish we had one, but we made it work. In the beginning, we just used some contractors and some trusted friends of ours that were engineers and developers. Uh, And then eventually we found an amazing senior engineer who became our CTO and was kind of like our unofficial technical co-founder. And so that's, that's how we did it. But um, any future endeavor in like the software SaaS space, I definitely plan on on finding a technical co-founder earlier. So with, when you first started, how did you even find contractors though? Like how did you go on Upwork, Fiverr, like those sites, or was it through school? Like yeah, all of the above. I, I literally tried everything. I contacted friends of mine in my network that I knew were software engineers. Uh, I was lucky to know a couple of them. They referred me to some of their friends. I used TopTal. I used Upwork. I used Fiverr. I literally tried everything um, until I found some of the right people um, and just kind of piecemealed it together. We went through like two or three different uh, development teams, contracted development teams, before we ever hired a full-time like W-2 employee uh, for for engineering. So that was that was really interesting because we were just kind of bouncing around. The code base was changing hands multiple times, and you know we ended up refactoring the product and all this stuff. And and uh, you know again, like none of that would have happened if we had a technical co-founder from day one. Um, but also learning experience for Casey and I, and you know we kind of know what to do and what not to do next time. So yeah, yeah, no, I'm so grateful that I have a technical that I've technical co-founders. I also went through that process where in the beginning it was just me and I had this idea, I had this vision and I had no idea how to execute it. I was like, I am not technical. I can understand the language of it. Like I 
have an engineering background, so I can understand that, but I, I can't actually build this. So I was interviewing, I mean, so many people from different contracting sites, different agencies, top tail. I, I tried like so many different options and I just always felt like anyone that I interviewed, it was like a project I was handing off rather than them being a part of the team. And I really wanted them to be invested with me and to be, to, to mm-hmm. want, you know, not just have this be like, okay, I did five hours of work. Here's my bill. Send it off. I wanted it to be someone that was just like building alongside me. So I am so grateful. I found my co-founders when I did, because I definitely think it'd be so much harder. It's just going through the whole process, like without that technical person. Yeah. So I commend you for doing it without it because it's probably a lot harder than not. So yeah, absolutely. And incentive alignment is everything in startups, mm-hmm. like making sure everyone's properly incentivized, equity, cash, like whatever, whatever incentives are involved, like making sure that that's aligned with your vision and their expectations is like the biggest thing in startups. Otherwise you're never getting off the ground. So. Mm -hmm. And when you were bootstrapping this, did you have a budget? Like if anyone's out there, that's like, well, I don't have that much money. I don't have that much money to put behind this, or, you know, I haven't raised money yet. Like how did you allocate a budget for this? And when did you realize it was time to raise? I didn't have a budget. Um, I, I probably looking back, I probably should have um, cause I spent a lot of money, but yeah, when it, when I started to get into like six figures, uh, that I spent out of my own pocket, I was like, okay, I should probably raise for this. Um, but honestly, fundraising wasn't even on my radar. It wasn't even something that crossed my mind. Cause I had never done it. I bootstrapped both my previous companies and Casey was actually the one that was like, Hey dude, like we should partner up and like raise for this thing. Cause it's, it's a venture backable business. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't even think about it and I was just putting money out of my own pocket every month. And I talked about this, like on my Twitter, for example, where I literally had a tweet yesterday and I was talking about how uh, the most important thing you can do is learn how to make money, learn how to sell, um, create a cash flow business. A lot of the times this is a service-based business, an agency, you know, marketing services, whatever it might be that can cash flow and, and kind of be like a lifestyle business and and fund whatever you want to do. Because like, if I had tried to start media kits, you know, back in 2017, when I first had the idea and I had like no income, basically, I was like a 17 year old kid in high school, it would have failed. There's no way I would never have been able to, you know, figure out what to do or, or get, get to the MVP that we built before fundraising. But luckily, you know, I, I was making decent money by the time I started media kits and I was able to fund it out of pocket. And I think that the best thing that you can do if you're planning on raising venture is to build a company where you don't raise venture first. So you learn how to do it and you learn the nuances of business first and you have a respect for money and PLs and, and things of that nature um, cause it'll, it'll help you a lot in the, in the venture back space. Totally. I know for us, uh, I mean, well, I see like some startups that they are spending so much money, like they raise and their burn is like absolutely insane with zero revenue coming in. And I always am just so confused with like what the plan is. Like, I know obviously you can raise, continue to raise, you know, your series A, B, C, but for me, I'm like, our main goal is, yes, we're obviously raising money, but we want to generate revenue and get increase that revenue very quickly and become a company that is monetizing from the beginning. And so I always just like, I, I totally agree. Like previously I had an agency, my co-founders also had an agency as well. So we've been in situations where we understand that, you know, that cash flow business where, you know, you're constantly having money coming in. I, I can't imagine building a company where I just have like no plans to, to monetize yeah. and just burn Absolutely. so much money. It's like, you see that movie in time where they have like the time on their wrist and when it runs out, they die. Like that's literally. Like, I haven't the seen it. But... Space, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I yeah. get it. 
no, it's, it's insane. But when, when you did start to raise, what was your plan? Cause you haven't raised before. Like you said, I'm also a founder that I, it was my first time raising as well. So everything was new to me. You know, I, I, I had no idea what the process was like. I was never involved in startups prior to Rella. I did not have friends that had, you know, venture back companies. So it was brand new to, to me, to my co-founders. Was it brand new to you guys as well? And like, what was your process when you first started? Did you have a plan or did you kind of just wing it and start emailing anyone you could talking to anyone you could? We, we totally winged it. Um, and, and same thing with not having a technical co-founder, same thing with, um, with like marketing a SaaS product. It was my first SaaS, my first venture back startup, my first startup in the creator economy, um, you know, all these things. And so, um, yeah, I, I always joke with people that media kits was my MBA, my law degree and my finance degree that I never actually got. Like it was, it was all of those things at the same time. And so, yeah, I, I think the the biggest thing for us when we were when we were building media kits was keeping a tight process around fundraising and you know in the beginning we were completely winging it and we had absolutely no idea what we were doing but once we got the hang of it and once we got the first few checks we started to realize oh fundraising is just like a sales process you need a crm you need to do follow-ups you need to do outreach you need to ask for referrals you need to ask for testimonials like all these things that you do in in like a sales organization when you're selling things it's the same thing for fundraising you're instead of you know selling a product you're selling equity in your company it's the same process and so running a process in general um, is like the biggest thing and and i think one of the one of the things that that we did really well is we focus on the small checks um and looking back the small checks that we took in, like the 10, 15, 25K checks uh, that were early angel checks into media kits, those were the guys that ultimately referred us to the six-figure checks. We never would have gotten six-figure checks if it wasn't for the small ones. And so I always tell early stage founders, don't forget about the small checks. Those guys are the ones that are going to bring the most amount of value in most cases outside of just the money. And so also keep in mind that you know when you're an early stage business, the angels are investing in you, not your company, right? If you could go and sell hot dogs tomorrow, as long as you make them their money back, they don't care. So they're investing in, in the jockey, not the horse. And that's one of the most important things as well is making sure that you impress them uh, as a person and as a founder um, outside of just talking about your business. You're selling the team in the beginning and you're also selling the story and especially early stage, you know, like a pre-seed round, like that is, it is all about your team and, and just that, I think that's it. Like, I think your idea might change, but you're really selling yourself. And I agree. I mean, it's one of those things where you need to have a process in the beginning. I was just kind of emailing people. I was just, you know, DMing people. I honestly, truthfully was super naive and thought that this would be easy. I was like, oh yeah, like, we have such a good idea. Why would someone not want to invest? And so I'm just going to email a few people, like get this done, get this wrapped up really quickly. And clearly that did not happen. It took so much longer than that. And yeah. it was such a, so much rejection, so much pushback and ghosting or countless of calls that then ends up in a no, you know? So I, it definitely was a process that I learned so much doing. And like when, once I was in it, how did you deal with that rejection though? Like, how did you, did you look at it as, okay, this is just sales on to the next, or did that actually take a toll on either of you guys? Oh, definitely. Overall, looking back, it's just a process. And I think towards the end, once we got the hang of it, you know, we didn't take it personally, but especially in the beginning, when you're getting five, 10, 15 no's a week from angels and funds, 
that can really take a toll on you, especially as, a, as an early stage founder. Um, it can kind of feel like the entire world is collapsing on you, right? You're, you know, the product's breaking, you're having issues with your, your team and hiring, you're having issues with, um, you know, with capital, you're having issues with fundraising. It, it kind, of, kind of feel like everything's not working, right? And so, you know, the last thing that you want is more rejection emails from VCs. But at the end of the day, that's the name of the game. And I think that the more that you can separate emotion from the process, the better you'll do. Um, and again, just kind of treat it like a numbers game. You know, one in every 10 investors that you reach out to is going to take a meeting. And then one in every 10 investors that your pitch is going to invest. And so, you know, it's kind of like the, like a 20 to one type ratio. So you have to get on 20 calls to get one check, even if it's a small check. Right. Mm -hmm. And you just got to understand that that's reality. And it might even, that ratio might even get worse um, as we move into you know, this, this new interesting economical state that we're, that we're in right now. Um, but at the end of the day, good ideas and good founders will always get funding. It just might take a little bit longer. So just keep that in the back of your mind. And, and I think that's the most important thing that founders should remember. Yeah, I agree. I never think that you should postpone, you know, doing something because of the time, like because of, you know, oh, it's a bad uh, summer is not a good season for this or uh, markets are down right now. Like, no, if you have an idea, if you need to do something, do it now or at least start doing it because you're never going to be able to predict like what time is actually right. And even if it's a little harder, like you said, good founders and good ideas will always get funded. So I totally agree. I mean, we were fundraising in the summer of 2022. Like that might have been the one of the worst times yeah. to fundraise. And I mean, thankfully we did it, but like that was definitely one of the most challenging times. Like whenever we even took meetings, some people were like, yeah, this is just like not a good time to fundraise. We're surprised that you're, you know, doing this. I'm like, yeah, well, we got to do what you got to do. So I, I totally agree. And did you know angels? Did you know investors before? Did you have connections? Or if you didn't, how did you actually make these connections? Oh, yeah. I mean, we definitely did. And that was, that was you know, large in part due to myself and Casey spending the previous three years of our career meeting people, networking, you know, networking with, with high-level people, high-net-worth individuals that did angel investing, right? And that was always kind of I, I wouldn't say we had like a like a plan or anything, um, but just in general, like surrounding ourselves with those types of people, uh, knowing that eventually one day we're going to start something that's going to require, you know, funding. And so um, Casey had his podcast, which, you know, he's interviewed like hundreds of, of some of the most uh, influential entrepreneurs and founders in the world. And so a lot of his podcast guests became angel investors and media kits. Um, and so I think my advice to young founders is use any medium at your disposal to get in the room with those types of people. Even if you're not fundraising for anything, even if you don't even have a business right now, do something to get the attention of these types of people, get in the room with these types of people, because you never know when you're going to have that idea and you're going to want to raise funds for it or, or whatever. Um, and I, just like Natalie's doing right now on this podcast, you know, it's like you want to just talk to people and build relationships. And that's one of the easiest ways um, to, to have you know, leverage when it comes to fundraising and, and taking me and getting meetings with people that, you know, the average founder might not be able to. So mm -hmm. I guess sometimes people can be scared to reach out to people if they don't see the, like, what can they provide them as well? You know, cause it's sometimes awkward to be like, Hey, want to get coffee? Like, you don't know me, but let me pick your yeah. brain. I feel like that isn't the best strategy. How did you, or at least I don't think it is. How would you say besides podcasting, for example, did you get into these rooms with these people? Like what are some other ways that you were able to network with them? Yeah. Um, I, I think regardless, like podcasting is the best way for the record. A hundred percent. Yeah. I always tell people that I'm like, if you want to meet 
really cool people start a podcast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it, literally, it's it's a it's a life hack, and Casey's a great case study for that, and so are you. Um, where both people get content out of it, you get to have a great conversation, you build a relationship, and it's mutually beneficial, right? And so that's that's the best way. I think outside of that, I I don't have a podcast. I've never had a podcast. You know, being friends with Casey certainly helped, but for me, it was mainly just like I built a real company that did real revenue that worked with you know some really big brands, and so um, that was kind of one way where I would you know, I would work with e-commerce founders and and people that were influential, like at least in my industry. Um, and I was able to get in the room with, with those types of people because I was working with them. I was a vendor of theirs. I was providing services to them. Um, and then, you know, just kind of a waterfall effect. Like once you get into those circles of, you know, founders and entrepreneurs in a specific industry, you're kind of always there. There, there are always going to be kind of events and things happening. And so, you know, just find your vehicle. For me, it was my marketing agency for Casey. It was his podcast find your vehicle and go all in on it and make sure that you take advantage of all the opportunities you have to get in the room with, with those types of people. Mm -hmm. And I always say like, don't be afraid to just reach out, like DM someone, email someone. Literally the worst that happens is you're back where you are right now with nothing where they just don't respond or, but I am like shameless with DMing. (laughs) I'm, I will DM anyone. I will follow up with people. Like there's no harm in doing that. And you just have so much that you can gain. So like, I never understand why some people don't do that. I'm like, just message them. Like, who cares? Like, it's, it's literally a quick message that you can send and you might have something really cool that comes out of it. So I always just encourage people to do that, even like no matter what they're doing, like no matter what medium they have, just messaging people and seeing if they respond. I think one of the, one of the most important traits of, of founders is follow-up and persistence and intensity. Like those are the those are the things that are going to take you far in life. Whether you're fundraising or selling or trying to meet people or trying to get podcast guests, follow up and and uh, just being persistent and consistent. Those things are going to get you so far. So mm-hmm. when you were fundraising, how many times would you follow up with someone until they said no? Like what was that? <laughs> as many you- as many as were needed. As many as were needed. Probably like I don't know. I we definitely followed up like five, six, seven times with some people just to get an answer, whether it was no or yes, didn't matter. I just can't take a maybe, right? I can take a no, I can take a yes, can't take a maybe. So if people were just like, were not responding to you, like you had a meeting, were not responding, follow as many times until they said no or yes. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's key. No, definitely. I feel I, I feel like sometimes people are like, oh, I don't want to be annoying. It's like, no, like you have to be annoying at this point. No, and follow up. The mindset that you need to put yourself in it too is like, if you truly believe in what you're building, you truly believe in your startup, you're not annoying because what you're doing when you're following up, you're trying to provide a life-changing opportunity to this to this person. You're trying to provide them with the opportunity to invest in your company. It's an opportunity. They should be they should feel privileged that you want them to invest in your business because you're going to make them so much money, right? If you genuinely believe in your business, following up with someone and getting them to invest is in their best interest. And that's the mindset that you should always be in as a founder. that is what I always tell people like whenever I have a conversation with an investor and I'll I'll talk to anyone like friends or family or even my co-founders and of course you want them to invest and you want someone on your cap table but it's more so like I'm like some friends are like how do you like ask people for money like that's so awkward or that's so you know that that's so challenging like asking people to invest like hundreds of thousands of dollars and I'm like well they're gonna become so much richer out of it so I feel like it's yeah. a win-win for both of us. Like we're, yes, yeah. they're investing capital right now, but in a few years, like they're going to be thanking me for for investing. So I think that's 
that's a hundred percent the mindset that you need to have. Like, of course, there are some people that you really want, you know, on your cap table and you want it to be like mutually beneficial, but you cannot look at it as like a, thank you so much for giving me money. Like I'm now just going to spend it and that's it. Like, no, no, no. You're going to make them a lot richer out of it. Okay. So media kits was acquired recently, which is incredible because you did start pretty recently, like a year ish ago. Technically we started, yeah, technically we started like almost two years ago, but we launched um, 12 months ago. So like launched acquisition was technically like under 12 months. So it's pretty, pretty quick. Yeah. How was that process of the acquisition? Like, did you know from the beginning I'm building to get acquired or did the opportunity present itself and then you looked into it? Um, I, I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. So I, we never built to sell. And I think my advice to founders is n- never build to sell, right? Not only is that a bad mindset to have as a founder, um, but also VCs don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that you're building to sell. They want to hear that you're building to take over and, and change the world and, ch- and, and change the, the face of an industry, right? So don't build to sell because, you know, that, that might uh, leave you extremely disappointed. However, it is, it would be naive to uh, ignore the fact that Media Kits was a tool um, it was the first tool that did what it did. Um, it was objectively like just cool looking and 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 it worked and it solved the problem that it was meant to solve. And so we knew uh, from the very beginning, even before we launched it, we knew that we were going to get m a interest from some of these larger companies um, to kind of make it a part of their of their uh, product suite. And so we knew the op- the option was like, Either we're going to get acquired and we're going to become a part of the product suite of one of these big companies, or we're going to become one of those big companies and go head to head with them, right? Which is a much longer, more arduous journey. And so we kind of knew that one of those two things was going to happen from day one, like before we even started. And so, um, you know, it's funny, like we got M&A interest from multiple companies before Viral Nation. You know, we, we entertained a couple of them, but at the end of the day, they just weren't a good fit. And, uh, and then, yeah, Viral Nation contacted us. Uh, in July of this year, um, and then we wrapped up the transaction in September. So um, it was it was pretty fast. We we definitely once we kind of saw what they were building and we we looked into the opportunity and and kind of weighed our options. We felt like it was a great home for the tech and for the team, and that you know that media kits would thrive inside of their ecosystem. So very cool. And with like I know you were saying that you were either going to become a part of the the product suite or go head to head with one of them when you were speaking with investors is that the answer that you gave when they if an investor asked oh what's your exit strategy because I know that that question gets asked sometimes during it yeah you know I think a couple investors probably asked us that um but honestly it didn't come up much and we we didn't have an exit strategy slide in our deck or anything and I think by the way advice never put an exit strategy slide in your deck you know it's it's like you're you're building towards a goal right and that goal is going to take you know, multiple decades in most cases, if you're really trying to truly disrupt an industry, you're going to be on this trajectory and it's going to take you a long time. And acquisition is kind of like an exit ramp, right? Like you're on the highway, take an exit, right? And so you never know when that might come. You never know when you might, you know, decide to become a part of a bigger organization. And so we were just heads down, building, 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 not worrying about M&A, not worrying about getting acquired, not worrying about selling. Um, but the opportunity presented itself. And, you know, obviously we we looked into it and we decided to do it. And so that's kind of the mindset that I think founders should take. You know, if you build a truly great product, people are going to want to buy it. Um, people are going to want to acquire it and make it part of their thing. And uh, just weigh the options and decide if you're willing to live in the trenches a little bit longer and, and you know, potentially go head to head with that acquirer um, or if it makes sense to become a part of their of their ecosystem. So, Yeah, no, definitely. I like that advice about 
how you were just head sound building and the opportunity came. Cause I agree. I think if you have that exit strategy or you only are focused on, you know, oh my God, I want to get acquired. Who can acquire us? The product lacks the, you know, you're not caring as much about your users or your customers. I, I just think it's not the best way to, to build. Cause like you said, if you have an amazing product, you will get eyes on you and you will get attention and then right. you will get users. And that is that's what you need to focus on because then in turn, sure, maybe you get acquired down the line, but that shouldn't be the end goal. The end goal should be to build like an amazing product that people cannot live without. And that solves a really, really big problem. So I know you've started five companies. This is this is your fourth, you were saying, or your fifth? Yeah, I think MediaKids is, is probably my, my fourth business. Yeah. Okay. So if you were to start another startup in the future, what were some things that you would do differently? Oh, Okay. I, yeah, I've thought a lot about this. Um, I think number one is hiring a technical co-founder earlier or bringing on a technical co-founder um, earlier in the process. That's definitely you know one of the, one of the biggest things that I learned. Um, I think another thing is you know really being cognizant of your cap table, not letting people on your cap table that aren't going to provide value. Being very very strict with who uh, who comes onto your cap table. Being very strict with who invests. Um, you know, again, going back to the topic from earlier treating investors like it's their privilege and it's an opportunity that they have, right? And so, you know, don't just take money because you need money. Take money from the right people that are going to be strategic and, and add value. I think another thing that we learned um, that I will implement in future businesses is don't build features that people don't want. Build features that you know your users are going to use um, and that comes directly from user feedback as early as possible. Obviously, your MVP, you want to you know, survey users and, and talk to people. But once you have a real product that's out there in the marketplace, don't waste your time building features that you haven't validated already by talking to your current users, right? Because they might leave if you don't build the, the features that they want, right? I also think that as far as fundraising goes, raise money when you don't need it, right? Uh, VCs can smell if you need money, um, kind of like like blood in the water, like a shark. Raise money when you don't need it. Raise money when things are good. Raise money when you have good traction, when you have enough runway in the bank, right? Because nothing's worse than a founder raising money out of desperation. Um, you're going to give up more of your company. You're going to bring on the wrong investors. You're going to be demotivated. It's just all around a bad thing. Um, so raise money uh, when you don't need it. Um, and I also think legal counsel is another big thing. You know, we we were lucky that we did this right the first time where we had a really great uh, attorney kind of from day one. Um, but don't skimp out on legal counsel. Have a good attorney. Um, if you know how to uh, if you know how to talk to an attorney properly and you know how to utilize them, they're going to save you way more money than they'll ever cost you. So. Yeah, I agree with everything that you just said. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that that's things that I hope that people that are starting a startup or a company can actually implement. Cause I think some of those things, like you were saying, like the legal counsel, um, that can be expensive. So people are like, Oh, I'll just do, do it myself, do it online. That will cause the biggest headache if you do that route. And then also like the raising money, like, yes, you do not want to be desperate because that is a very obvious energy that you give off. And then you're going to either have unfavorable terms, bad people come in, like you said, it might be like suicide for you. Like you're going to be stressed. You're going to do things that aren't in the business's best interest. So I agree with everything that you said. And I'm excited to see what you come up with next. Cause I'm sure that this is not going to be your last business. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Uh, where can they find you and where can they find Media Kits? Um, so yeah, Media Kits is now part of Viral Nation. So uh, it's just at Media Kits on all platforms. Um, for me, I'm pretty active on Instagram at Kieran O'Brien, um, Twitter at the Kieran O'Brien, and I'm trying to make more YouTube content as well. So uh, just search my name on YouTube. I'm sure you'll find it. So I'm making all sorts of content on there about like startups and fundraising. So awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Natalie. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Real Real. I hope that you enjoyed and don't forget to rate, review, follow, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow me personally on Instagram at Natalie Barbu and the podcast at The Real Real Podcast. I'll see you next Monday. Hey, my name is Lovon Roomf, and I've been working my ass off as a celebrity stylist by day and a podcast host by night. At the Low Life Podcast, it's all about keeping it real. We're talking fashion, beauty, to religion, sex, drugs, mental health. I mean, there's no topic off limits here, and vulnerability is mandatory. You can find my podcast, The Low Life, that's L-O, no W, everywhere and anywhere you listen to your podcasts. New episodes are out every Thursday. We'll see you then.